You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Hello, I'm Gillian McIntyre, Adult Program Coordinator at the Art Gallery of Ontario. In this podcast, you will hear a conversation between Glenn Lowry, Director of the Museum of Modern Art New York and formerly Director of the AGO, and Matthew Teitelpalm, the Michael and Sonia Kerner Director and CEO of the AGO. The conversation is moderated by Ron Graham, an author and journalist who is currently serving as a trustee of the Royal Ontario Museum and the chair of its Institute for Contemporary Culture. So really the opening question is your take, is this the dark age of museums or is it the golden age of museums? And maybe I'll start with Matthew. Um, well, I think it's the golden age in the sense that uh, museums are in crisis about their identity. And it's a golden age because it's an extraordinary time to be thinking about those issues. And uh, what do I mean by that? I mean it's an incredible time to be thinking about what does it mean to serve a public? What is the need of a museum that the museum satisfies in terms of its range of activities? Coming on a Wednesday night when we're free and when we have a range of activities, three different activities in three different spaces plus some pretty extraordinary exhibitions, is a pretty exciting time to come. And that is the golden age on the positive side. If you come on a Tuesday afternoon at around 4 o'clock to the Art Guy of Ontario when you're relatively alone, that's the hint for those of you who are trying <laughs> to see the ABEX show without anybody else there. Um, but both are exciting. Both, both get me going. Both One is the proposition of isn't this extraordinary the service that we are providing? And the other is, oh my God, what is the paradigm that has to exist in order to attract audiences on a sustained basis? Uh, there are many things that I'm uh, jealous about uh, when I think about the Museum of Modern Art. Um, one of them is, you know, 10 million tourists a year, or whatever the number is in New York, and we just don't enjoy that. So um, we, I think, have different challenges. But it's still a golden age because those issues are deeply captivating. Glenn, what's your take on them? Well, I think, I mean, I largely uh, agree with... Matthew, but I'd inflect it in, in the following ways. That one, the reason we're here tonight is not because of Matthew or me or even Ron, who uh, actually is worth coming out to listen to. Uh, we're here because of the art. Uh, what's upstairs? Uh, that's what we do collectively in the museum world, is to think about, engage with, and with any luck, present intelligently extraordinary works of art that capture the imagination. The rest of this uh, is simply the wrapper inside of which is the essence. Uh, and I think when one has an opportunity like uh, you have here, not just to see the extraordinary works uh, from our collection that deal with that moment of abstract expressionism, but to see the Henry Moores that you have here or the great group of seven paintings that you have here, that's what makes museums interesting. And their role in society ebbs and wanes. Uh, their, their golden moments when they seem to be utterly relevant and their other moments when they seem to be less relevant. But in fact, I think we all ultimately crave the opportunity to engage directly with artists and through those artists, uh, their works of art. And Matthew and I spent a good part of this afternoon actually talking about our museums dead. Uh, that is, has the 
model of the internet and social networking replace the experience that we can have in uh, a place like the Art Gallery of Ontario. And for many who work in that world, uh, of course we're dead and irrelevant. We are, we're physically based hard structures in a world that's all about the dissemination uh, and diffusion of information across virtual space. But I don't see that as a problem. I th these worlds can coexist. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. And they each need the other. And I think what's exciting today about uh, being involved in the direction of a museum is not so much that it's a golden age, it's that it's an age of transition. We as a culture are changing rapidly and dramatically. And it stands to reason that our institutions are going to shift around and change with, the, with our culture and society in some relationship to it. And I think we sense that. That's what makes that, that golden moment is when we feel like we're connected and plugged in. The dark moment is the anxiety of at what cost. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Can I respond? Yes, please. Yeah. We could make your job pretty easy. You never know. <laughs> yeah, please. OK. So, um, uh, so this is what I'm anxious about. Okay, what I'm anxious about and what Glenn said is, um, is the definition of art going to stay the same such that when you say we, we're here to see the art, that the definition of art stays the same so that people come to museums for that art experience? And obviously there's part of my brain and part of my experience as I watch others that are looking for art in places other than museums in a much more profound way than they ever have before. That's number one. And number two, maybe more in a more complicated way, is has learning moved from the individual moment of rapture, immediacy, uh, personal experience to something much more social? And are we moving into an age in which you can't actually uh, value the experience of the individual in front of the great massacre of the innocents to the same degree that you used to? Are we now in museums looking for, because we must, ways to create the social experience around that painting those are the, so you say continuum, and I agree, because I don't think there's an evident starts here, ends there in those, with those two issues. What is the nature of art changing, and is the notion of social experience changing? So I would respond to that. This is, by the way, this conversation has been going on with Matthew <laughs> and me for at least 15 years. So you, know, you just shout when you get bored, OK? <laughs> um, so the question about how we consume art, which is really what the first part of your question is, about is, is surely changing, right? There are more art galleries, there are more art fairs, there are more biennials. The opportunity to see art outside the frame of the museum is greater today than it ever has been, and that's thrilling and exciting. Uh, what I remember is an article that was in The New Yorker about 10 years ago by uh, a, a writer named Jonathan Seabrook. And what he wrote about was Soho in New York, which in the 90s was a really hot spot for looking at art. Uh, a lot of galleries, the Guggenheim Museum opened a branch there. And then towards the end of the 90s, a lot of retail operations started to move in. And what he, what he was writing about was the fact that many of these retail operations had started to borrow the, the language of the museum. They were 
curating displays of uh, clothing. They were using the same lighting systems as museums. They were developing casework that looked like museums. There's one beautiful store in, in Soho, it's still there today, Murray Moss, where you know on a certain level everything in that store is something that you could see at the Museum of Modern Art. And what he asked was, what does it mean when you go into a store and what you see and how you see it feels as if you were in a museum? And I started thinking about the implications of that, and there's, they're, they're actually quite profound. And I hope we have figured out at least one of the answers to it. If going to the Museum of Modern Art, or for that matter, the Art Gallery of Ontario, ultimately is indistinguishable from going to Murray Moss or to the Prada store or to a biennial, then we will die. We, we do not have a chance against that tide of, of commercial interest. We will die. But the other way to look at it is our challenge is to make the visit and the experience of coming to us sufficiently different that it's irrelevant. Uh, and what can we do that they can't do? One, we have a much bigger audience to work with at the get-go. Uh, two, uh, we can create social experiences that are based on knowledge and learning that no gallery and certainly no uh, store can provide. And we can do so with objects of far greater significance. And that's before one starts to talk about how we can deploy the internet and digital learning and all the other strategies. So I, f I feel very comfortable that if we fail to do that, it's not because we didn't have the tools. It's because we didn't have the courage to make the changes necessary. So that's, that would be my response to the, the consumption question. The issue of uh, is the art that's being made today different? I think that's the question you were asking. Uh, and does that somehow affect what we as museums do? Because we're not a historical institution, we don't have to worry about the past. We, we're locked into the present. And just the tail edge of the past and the tail, the leading edge of the future, you know, basically will change and adapt in order to respond to artists. And, and again, the moment we fail to do that, the moment we are unwilling to demolish our building to create a different structure or platform for the art that's currently being made, is the moment that we will cease to be a museum of modern art and will become a historical institution, at which point we'll have another set of problems. Long-winded answer to a so Matthew, provocation. Do you, do you have the same, uh, because you're not a museum of modern art, the same mandate or sense of mission that Glenn has, or do you have a, a different uh, ambitions or challenges to what he has, besides the fact that he's in New York City? Well, in a way, his... Um, challenge is to define a set of activities in relation to a definition of modern art. It's not bad. I mean, meaning to say you can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, but you have a starting point against which you can respond. Ours, I think, is much more complicated in that sense, okay? Because uh, you're encyclopedic. Yeah, yes, and, and so that my response to Glenn's point earlier is about the store and all of that when we do our studies about what our audiences want, and this is to reinforce your point, what our audiences want is an interpretation 
the first thing they want is to hear a point of view. And maybe the clothing store doesn't have a point of view, but museums must. And when you talk about us losing our nerve or we have the tools, we just don't take it, it's because we, don't, we as museums don't push far enough in the point of view. I think the point of view is more complicated at the AGO because the point of view about the Baroque or the point of view about medieval ivories has to be thought of in relation to its meaning in relation to a contemporary audience than it might be at the Museum of Modern Art. But that doesn't mean at the Museum of Modern Art they're not involved in deeply interesting issues that are themselves very complicated. But I do think encyclopedic museums have some really specific challenges. And we are, although we're not the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, we are encyclopedic in the breadth of objects that we show. You know, the model here is, I'm reminded of uh, what for me is still the most interesting essay I can remember having read. Uh, and that's Isaiah Berlin's The Hedgehog and the Fox. And he was writing, he was talking about different uh, approaches to literature and to a certain degree philosophy. He was a great <coughs> philosopher at Oxford. And you know, the fox knows a great deal about many different things. Sorry, the fox knows a lot about many different things. The hedgehog knows a great deal about one thing. So we at the Museum of Modern Art, we're hedgehogs. That's what we are. We have a nice little terrain. We know it really well. Uh, and we don't have to worry about all the other stuff. Uh, and that gives us uh, an interesting platform. The Art Gallery of Ontario is by definition a fox. It has many different places, uh, but maybe not one that it can go super deep in. But Berlin's observation is the fox isn't better than the hedgehog, and the hedgehog isn't better than the fox. They're just different points of view, different perspectives. And so I think, in a way, the point of view still comes the, the, the issue still comes back to a point of view. Institutions that don't have a point of view, that don't make an argument, are institutions that I think we would generally describe, even though we might use slightly different language, as soulless. They're places that just don't resonate. And even when you don't agree with a point of view, and Lord knows at a place like the Museum of Modern Art, many of our uh, visitors don't agree with our point of view there's still something against which to measure yourself, to engage with, to decide, I like this, I hate this, I'm interested in it. And I, and I think that's what a curatorial perspective is. Right? That's why we have curators in our great institutions, is to create those points of view based on their extensive knowledge and experience. And that, again, goes back to why I don't think museums become irrelevant, because even in an age that is all about the rapid dissemination of information, what we, what we crave isn't the information, it's the interpretation and the knowledge. OK, so we're amongst friends, right? So I can say this, and there's no journalist who's going to write this tomorrow in the paper. So that's my um, uh, conflict about the King Tut show for us. Okay, so on one We're hand, going into deep analysis now. Yeah, no, no, no. This is, this is Glenn and I talking, and he's going to pat me on the back and say it'll be okay tomorrow. But the fact is that, um, uh, you know, King Tut, 400, over 400,000 people paid to see it. It was fabulous. Lots, you know, you're, you popularize, you um, create meaning in seeing objects. People get great pleasure out of it. You, you know, whatever. It feels good. But on the other hand, you're not active in the interpretation of objects from a staff point of view, from a learning within the institution point of view. And um, what Glenn says is, right, if you're just presenting 
and not interpreting, and if you're not therefore deepening the capability of the institution by what you do, there is a feeling of loss. And my conflict is that I'm certainly loving it when 400,000 people see an exhibition at the AGO, so I'm not taking a step back, but you want wherever you can to truly, truly push for the notion of the point of view, the interpretation, the way of understanding, because I think people actually come to museums to learn something about themselves, right? Which is why the sharing thing is interesting. They share, contrast, share their experiences. And if you're not in the middle of that as an institution, then you're, I don't think that your visitors get it, which is why, for example, Maria Abramovic was so sensational at the AGO. It had a point of view about performance art. It had a point of view about her sense of how she related to different cultures. And you felt it when you went in there. It wasn't a great exhibition because it was sensational, although that helped. But it was a great exhibition because it had a point of view about her identity in relation to her cultural experiences. And people want that from institutions. Since you raised the issue of uh, King Tuck, can you talk a little bit, and I think there's different experiences uh, here, about the pressure in, of, of all the Canadian institutions to have blockbuster shows to uh, bring the audiences in uh, and to pay the bills for more adventurous programming, if you want. Or not that the blockbusters necessarily aren't adventurous, but you know what I mean. Whereas I have the sense in, at MoMA, uh, partly because of the demographic city, the amount, number of tourism, the strength of your permanent collection, that you're not as necessarily as blockbuster buster-driven as Canadian institutions. Is that a fair comment, Matthew? And to what extent are you a victim of the... And, and how does that change the institution to know that you are basically competing against Niagara Falls or whatever the other... CN Tower or whatever the attraction is that might be drawing people elsewhere? I'm actually much more interested in Glenn's answer to this than, than mine because, we'll get to that. because um, you know, it's really, it, it's, it's a lopsided conversation to talk about New York institutions in relation to the blockbuster versus Toronto. But as soon as you go to Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, I mean, I don't meet one of those directors who isn't talking a lot about, if not the blockbuster, the um, time-based uh, focused project that will get people to say, I must go to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art this month. I must go to the Art Institute of Chicago this month. And I think in that sense, New York institutions are different, but maybe they're not. Maybe it's just my perception that the notion of a blockbuster may mean something different there. And but before we ask, Len, so what about the second part? How do you feel, or do you feel it's changed the nature of what the AGO is to have to have be blockbuster driven um, is it does it change your your way of operating does it change the does it throw you off mandate to what you might be doing otherwise um, does it change the experience of being in this place I suppose it could I suppose if we did you know five King Tuts in a row people would certainly say that we're off our mandate they might say we're off something else as well, but... Um, well, they might uh, say you're on something. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Like, is the AGO cool or what? Um, uh, but but um, I actually think that's not what I think about very much. I don't think about the blockbuster that much. I mean, do I think about what might follow Chagall? Yeah, I think about it. And, you know, we're, we're trying our best to to find exhibitions that grab people's attention. That's not what keeps me up at night or what I think about. In fact, Susan will tell you not much keeps me up at night. But <laughs> the fact is, um, what I think about is how does the art museum have more of a meaning to a local community? That's the thing that I think about all the time. How can I get 
people in Toronto to come back to the AGO over and over and over again. That's what I think about. How does the greatest display of Canadian art in, uh, in our country, by definition in the world, how does one of the greatest displays of Gothic ivories, how does the greatest display of Henry Moore in a public institution, how do those uh, experiences ha keep people coming back to their institution and give them a sense of ownership? That's what I think about more than I think about so the So I'm going to ask you the answer to that question, how do you do that? But first I want to hear Glenn on the blockbuster. I mean. well, let me begin by picking up where Matthew ended up. That's exactly the question we think about all the time. How do we create a program that is so compelling and interesting that both local and um, international audiences will want to come back to the museum over and over again? Um, there's no museum director that I know uh, when he or she is telling the truth that wouldn't say they hope every one of their shows is a blockbuster, right? I mean, we all want our shows to be wildly successful and to capture the imagination of people. We don't, however, set out to create a blockbuster. We, we, we literally don't think about that. Now, part of it is because New York is a, an unusual uh, city in that, one, it has enormous population density. Uh, two, it has an extraordinarily high uh, rate of tourism, both domestic and international. So access to potential visitors in New York is unlike almost any other city uh, in North America. So you, you can't really look at what happens in New York and say, well, that can be translated to Los Angeles, Chicago, or Toronto. And in addition to that, we've put an enormous amount of energy over the 80 years of our existence into trying to have an extraordinary collection that was in and of itself uh, uh, a draw. What we think about is cooking, uh, and literally cooking. We think about what would be the most interesting meal that we could serve for the month of January? What would we want to have as an appetizer? What would we want to have as a main course? What, you know, what little sorbet might we put in there to cleanse the palate before we move on to cheese? How do we want to conclude it with a great dessert? And we actually literally think of our program like um, a multi-course meal. And we don't ever rely on a single exhibition uh, or a single idea, but really imagine a season of many different ideas. And what we've learned is that whenever we've tried to take an overarching theme and link five or six different exhibitions to that theme, it's been a disaster uh, from the point of view of our overall audience. And so now I've, my role is to say, no, 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 we can't do those two exhibitions at the same time because they're too similar. We need unlike events. Let me give you an example, um, that if you only did, for a season, um, major exhibitions uh, that dealt with painting and sculpture, which is a big draw at the museum, you would be leaving out the architecture and design audience, the film audience, the photography audience, the media audience, the performance audience, and they make up a very big piece of our equation, right? Because they are not going to come to see de Kooning, which will be a big show uh, that we have in the fall. Uh, 
but it'll also be on at the same time as Talk to Me, which is a design show that looks at the interface between technology and voice-activated uh, transmission. And it'll also be on at the same time as New Photography, which looks at cutting-edge photography. So for us, we've discovered that we can get to the same place that a blockbuster would get you to, which is a very high level of attendance. But we can get there with exhibitions that are much more varied and therefore more sustainable. The problem with a blockbuster is you put all of your eggs in a single basket. Uh, and there are certain exhibitions that can deliver that. There are other exhibitions that are a bit of a risk. And then there are a whole lot more that will never deliver that kind of impact. So when you get down to the handful of exhibitions that could deliver the impact, how many of those can any one institution hope to produce in a decade? It's a, it's a fraction. So w we were a blockbuster-driven museum uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s and made a very conscious effort in the mid-90s to get off that train in order to be able to have a more sustainable program and a more sustained conversation with our audience. And that comes back to Matthew's point, that if you're betting everything on a single project, which can be very exciting, then what you're really training your audience to respond to is some kind of almost narcotic hit that you might be able to conjure up, as opposed to thinking of your institution as a convener of a conversation that you want to be part of all the time. So Matthew, then picking that picks back to what you had said earlier, in, in, your, in what keeps you up at night, what are the elements then that are non-blockbuster that, that are, what are the elements of building this, how do we get, the how do we talk to our local audience, how do we get them back? What are the elements as a director that you have to bring to that in order to achieve that goal? Is it just me, or are you asking me all the tough questions? That's what I want to, or is, he, is he asking me first, and then, and then he... I mean, this is... Okay, so... Um, Thank God he has the answer. <laughs> uh, okay, so the flip side of the question, why do you come to the AGO? You come to the AGO for interpretation of point of view. When we find out from the people with whom we speak, and we speak to a lot of people with whom we speak, the reason they don't come is because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to dress. They don't know what the experience is going to be. They don't know what it means to have what Glenn describes that moment with a work of art that is transformative. They don't get it. So the answer to that, which the MoMA has achieved, maybe before Glenn was the director, but certainly brilliantly since he's become director, this notion that when you go there, it's almost irrelevant what exhibition is on. You're going to have a great, memorable experience. Now, <clears throat> Demoiselle d'Avignon helps, OK? And if you want to send that our way for a few months, we'd appreciate that. <laughs> to know that there are moments of respite in the moment that are going to give you that, regardless of what else there is. So the identity is you go, and you're going to be, there's going to be something fulfilling. I don't think the AGO is quite there yet. Right? Maybe because we've cycled too many works through, we don't have the iconic works up long enough, something we're thinking about. Um, but um, when I think about what the future holds, and this is Glenn's point about the trajectory or the continuum and where are we on that continuum, we must think and we must define the AGO 
better than we have what the experience is when you're here, what the shared experience is, what the learning is in the company or social context of being with others. And um, uh, that has to be the envelope in which we present these transformative works, uh, moments with works of art. And that's, again, what I think about. And when I say it keeps me up at night, not because I'm anxious about it, perhaps in this regard, but that it's actually, and this is why I say golden age, it's a deeply interesting issue to think about how do you create the social experience where people can share thinking about and feeling about and um, breakthrough understandings about works of art with others and at the same time hold on to the notion that these are singular experiences that are really quite on their own transformative. How do you find that balance? And when we, as long as we're on that continuum, as long as we're going the right direction, then I think we're gonna answer that question. How does the uh, changing demographics of a city like Toronto uh, change your uh, change your job or change the challenges and make it more interesting or make it harder or is it a new challenge that you're not you have to face or uh, what what's the what's the reality of that fact? He is getting here. He goes again. Like <laughs> 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 did he slip you something before? <laughs> I don't want here. He had a little side deal going <laughs> in. I'm saving the big one for him. Don't worry. Um, uh, so Glenn and I actually talk a lot about this. Should museums be interested in new audiences or should museums be interested in expanding audiences? And, um, and there's probably no answer. It's probably both. Because there shouldn't be anybody in Toronto, let's talk about our community, that doesn't feel this institution belongs to them. So uh, what does that mean? We're not going to be an institution that goes deep in historical Chinese art. We're not. So if people are going to feel connected to us because of that specific reflection of a certain kind of experience in our collection, then we're not going to be able to satisfy that. But that's why I come back to the point of view, the reason why we open up interpretation in the gallery to many voices, the reason why we're trying more and more to say there's not a singular point of access, but many points of access, because it's in that experience that you might actually be able to open up the invitation, the invitation to various communities that say this is a place that belongs to you. And the challenge at the moment is that new Canadians don't know about the AGO, or they're not welcome here, or what do you have to get past to get new communities coming into, besides just showing objects from their homeland or whatever? I mean, what, what's the challenge? Can I answer that question a little yeah. bit? Because that question hasn't changed from when I was at the yeah. Art Gallery of Ontario. And I remember being deeply puzzled at, at, at a certain moment by the fact that here we were in the middle of one of the most interesting Asian and particularly Chinese communities, not just in Canada, but in North America. And it was almost impossible to ever get a consistent Chinese audience here. And I started talking to people in the community, and they looked at me as if I had three heads. And they said, but you don't understand. Most of the people who are in the community around you are first generation Chinese. They're just struggling to have an existence, to eke out a daily living. Do you think they actually are worried about whether or not they're going to a Blue Jays game or to, uh, to the Art Gallery of Ontario? It's not in their frame of reference. So one side of this is that it takes time to become sufficiently comfortable in your new country to and to be sufficiently well-educated to start saying, oh, I want to take advantage of these opportunities that are in front of me. I don't have to work 24-7. I can actually take two hours off on a, 
Saturday afternoon and, and stroll into the Art Gallery of Ontario. So one of these is just, it's pure time, that, and, and I think one has to really think hard about the differences that first generation versus second generation and even third generation um, immigrants have to deal with. So, and I don't think that's a small issue. Uh, I think one has to be really thoughtful about it. We've done a lot of studies um, about who, who comes to American museums, not just the Museum of Modern Art, but who, American art museums. And I, I'm willing to bet it's similar in Canada, but I, I don't know that for a fact. But there are two absolutely um, deciding indicators of who's going to visit an art museum in the United States. First is level of education. If you don't have a BA or more, it's highly unlikely you're going to visit an art museum. Two, if you don't earn seventy-five dollars or $100,000 or more, it's highly unlikely you're going to visit a museum. But if you have a BA and earn $100,000, it's almost certain you visit an art museum at least once a year. So wealth, or call it affluence, and education are huge determinants as to who's going to visit an art museum. Not saying that that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it just happens to be that we're involved in a practice that requires, on the one hand, a certain amount of leisure time to enjoy, and that's why I think wealth is a factor in that, and it also requires a certain amount of education to appreciate. So when we spend a lot of time thinking about do we try to expand or broaden our audience, expand meaning adding new communities versus taking the community we already serve and seeing if we can serve even more members of that, the ethical side of us says we want to expand our audience. We want to make every community want to be part of what we do. The uh, uh, entrepreneurial side of us says, are you out of your mind? The amount of energy and money you're going to have to spend to try and convince somebody who's never been to a museum before to go to a museum is exponentially greater than what it would take to convince somebody who's gone to a museum in their community to come and visit your museum. So these two things are in absolutely diametric um, tension with each other. And the future is all about expanding the communities. The present is making sure you have a sufficiently broad audience that you can support what you're doing. One thing interestingly about the MoMA and um, many visits is that you, you describe the elements of the population of New York, the number of tourism, the, uh, the dinner analogy of what you put together, and yet there's something that seems to have happened there that's um, magic. I don't know whether, or maybe it's been orchestrated, that's the, the question. There seems to be, um, it's, it's very cool, it's very hip, it's very in, it's very young, it's very the place to be. And now there's many great institutions in New York and the area, but MoMA seems to have captured, the last time I was there, I was in your cafe, your great cafe, and there was a young couple, they were on their honeymoon from New Orleans, and they want, I said, what are you here for? They said, well, we came to see the Statue of Liberty and MoMA at 21 years old. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> and um, Oscar Wilde said, the third dis Biggest disappointment of marriage. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, um, so the question is, is that orchestrated or is that just the zeitgeist? Is it luck that when you open this new building and we're uh, criticized for charging too much at the door, which is an issue we're all faced, 
and another issue to talk about. But nevertheless, you attracted this record numbers, record buzz, record hipness. So what was that all about? Well, the new building was definitely an element of it, but it was intentional. Uh, and it I hope it is the result, if not of orchestration, at least a very conscious effort uh, to, to do that. I had, it was not an insight I had, but I was fortunate enough to benefit from someone else's insight and figure out what to do about it. So I was talking to Herbert Muschamp, who was the architectural critic of the New York Times, a very troubled uh, but brilliant man. And uh, we were talking about museums and the Museum of Modern Art with which he had a love-hate relationship. And, and I said, so come on, Herbert. Like, what is it about the Museum of Modern Art that turns you on? And he said, it's the best place to pick up a date on Friday night. <laughs> and he was dead serious. And a light bulb went off. Duh. If you make the place the best place to pick up a date on Friday night, you're going to have an awful lot of people who want to be there. Uh, so why was that a best place for Herbert to pick up a date? Because one, he wasn't interested in just anybody. He was interested in somebody who shared his values, who was interested in having a conversation with him about the same things. In his case, architecture and design. Two, he was a gay man, and you know, he had lived through the AIDS era. He wanted a safe place. He wanted a place where the odds of finding a partner or a date for the night were going to be that he wasn't going to end up beaten up in a back alley. Uh, and, and when I think about, and I think about this a lot for women, because we have a huge, our, when you look at the 18 to 25 year olds who visit the Museum of Modern Art, they are predominantly women. Uh, and why? Because I think, again, for them, they're likely to meet people there that share their interests, and it's a safe place. It's the kind of people you meet at a museum, and maybe not the kind of people who are going to you know, do something terrible to you in, in, a, in a back alley. So when Herbert said that, uh, I, I, the light bulb went off. You have to make the place that people want to go to, not just on Friday night, all the time, to meet other people they think are going to be interesting. The other light bulb went off. Our chairman at the time was uh, Ronald Lauder, whose family uh, had built the Estee Lauder uh, cosmetics fortune. And so I was telling Ronald about this insight that I'd had with Herbert. And he looked at me and he said, well, you're just as stupid as I thought you were. He, and he pulled, out, he pulled out an Estee Lauder ad. And he said, well, what do you think we're selling here? Um, and so like an idiot, I said, cosmetics. And he shook his head and he said, no, sex. Uh, and he was dead on. People are attracted. There's a physical, powerful dimension that gets people to want to be in a place, gets people to want to do something. So the solution of how are we going to get a lot of young people to feel it was hip and cool to be at the Museum of Modern Art that was their grandparents' museum was to merge with uh, PS1, which was a small contemporary art center in Long Island City that had the audience we wanted. They just didn't have as many of them as we could get. So we merged with uh, PS1 in order to take take on, in fact, to acquire their expertise, their knowledge of how to create programs, how to present yourself, how to think in a way that would be highly attractive to a younger, hipper audience. And from my perspective, almost everything we've done would have been impossible without the knowledge we gained from working with PS1. They, they were the catalyst 
in opening up that conversation for us. Uh, and then positioning it as, very consciously, a social involvement that was participatory, that had the promise of uh, an interesting afternoon and maybe something even more fun later on. Matthew, what's your... <laughs> so, so what's I... the best time to pick up somebody at the <laughs> I'm, I'm not... Um, uh, people who know me well know that I'm not competitive. Um, I love the wrong. Um, uh, but I need to say to Glenn that the Henry Moore sculpture was voted in Now Magazine as the number one place for public fornication in the city of Toronto, okay? <laughs> and, and I just... Go with it, Matthew. I made a note already, believe me. But um, the, no the notion of um, expanding versus new audiences, the notion that you've described about PS1, which is inspiring, is in the end about the notion of the, the social experience. Mm -hmm. And the social experience is about the repeat visit. So we can do anything once. And that's what I say at the age of, we can do anything once. You, wanna, you, know, you can do this, you can do that. The challenge for us is how do you take, and that's what I think, the answer to your question is Glenn has figured out how to do that on a sustained basis through the menu or whatever to create this sense that if I just go to the MoMA, I will have a great experience. Therefore, I will go back, I will go back, I will go back. And that's what we have to figure out in Toronto. And Glenn did say to me once, he gave me the advice that a trustee gave to him, don't try and hit the home run. Hit the single over and over and over again. So tonight, when, I, when Glenn and I came back from talking and going to look at art, we went into one of the galleries where there were 250 uh, gay and lesbian teens launching a zine at the AGO and there was a hip hop performance. We went through the restaurant where there were about 100 people having a corporate event in the Young Gallery and then we came through the, the cafe where there were about another 100 people with another event, let alone the number of people that came in on a Wednesday night and I thought to myself, those are, that's a single, a single, a single, a single. And the question is, how do I do that over and over again? Because that means the AJO is a place that has meaning in our community. And that's my, that's maybe part of my response to the blockbuster question. You know, the King Tut, now I'm gonna get closer to what does keep me up at night. The King Tut, you know, maybe did have a lot of first time visitors who haven't come back. And that doesn't necessarily create the new AGO. In, in the, both your answers, you're conjuring up or evoking a vision of the present or maybe of the future museum as this sort of social place, this meeting ground of people, uh, uh, a forum or a civic square of some sort. And yet, uh, if that's the case, as it seems to be, um, what about the, is, is it just being an old fogey to say what's being lost there is the sense of a um, a, of a sacred space, an educational space, a space that is the home of artists and uh, it, it elevates and exalts them about of all else, that it's a space of contemplation and repose, that, or that that's all finished and that's basically a very antiquated view of it. And basically what's now taken over, at least for the moment, is this sense of uh, it's party time. 
Okay, so my unequivocal answer is if that's what it sounds like I'm saying, then backtrack. Mm -hmm. Because I think content matters deeply, and I think one of the lessons of the abstract expressionist show is, to put it simply, quality matters. And this whole notion of American Idol and this, that, and the other, which on some level suggests that everybody's an expert, doesn't actually take away from the fact that we live in a generation that knows more than any previous generation about quality. I, I deeply believe that. And one of the reasons why the Abstract Expressionist show is resonant in the way that it is, is that you know that when you're standing in those rooms, you are in front of the greatest art of its kind, from the greatest museum of its kind in the world, period, full stop. And that means something to you. So I don't think content, we can be indifferent. I think one of the challenges um, in museum practice, and again, Glenn and I were talking about this recently, is that we've actually nurtured a whole generation of arts professionals who don't believe in the word quality. That they believe in the notion of diversity. They believe in the notion of uh, represent, broad representation. They believe in ideas of access, all worthy. But I think the challenge for us now is to marry those notions of accessibility, those notions of self-identity with definitions of quality. Because again, I think people are looking to museums to help them understand that. That's the whole point of having a point of view. So I would say quality is a pretty interesting word for me these days, and I think it's maybe undervalued. And maybe I've done it myself, which is why you've, you've picked up on that. Go ahead. I want to, the whole, the, there's a lot that's packed into that question you asked. One, I think museums, like all educational institutions, change over time. Uh, you know, when I went to college, there were required courses. Uh, we thought they were essential to learning. Uh, my children, who went to some of the same colleges I went to, didn't have required courses. They're just as educated. They're just educated differently. So we grew up in a generation, uh, and we're all pretty much of the same age, we grew up in a generation that privileged the idea that the singular encounter in a quiet space with a work of art was the way in which to understand and appreciate that work of art. Our children have grown up in a very different environment. Do they understand that object differently than we do? For sure. Do they understand it less well? I don't know about that. Uh, so when I think of the museum as a social experience, I don't think about it as a party. I think about it very consciously in the sense that museums are public spaces. Anyone who goes to a museum knows that they're going there not just to be with works of art, but to be with other people. And if we have understood, and I don't mean the Museum of Modern Art, I mean we as a generation of uh, professionals working in museums, if we've actually understood that social dimension of being in that space looking at art with other people is meaningful and have found ways to um, catalyze that to make it exciting and interesting and build upon it, I'm not uncomfortable with that. Will that change? Of course. I don't believe, museums are not static. They follow a path for a while, then they start to change just as society changes, and surely in another generation or two generations, the sets of interests that drive people to want to be in museums will be different than they are today. Perfect example. It, when I grew up, when I matriculated through college, 1970s and early 1980s, the idea that modern art was popular just would have made people giggle with laughter. Nobody went to a museum to see modern art. It was 
unapproachable, it was uninteresting, it was done by people who were charlatans. You went to museums to see the great masterpieces of the Renaissance and the Baroque, to see great Chinese ink painting. Today, a huge driver of why people want to go to museums is to see modern art. It's, so we've seen a huge shift there. I don't believe for a moment that that's going to be the case in 50 years. People will be driven by something else that, that makes them go. So the experience of what happens in the museum will evolve and change as, as people's interests evolve and change. So that side of it, I think, um, is very much at play. On the other hand, a large part of our audience, um, and I'm looking out to, to many of you because you are part of our audience, grew up thinking that that singular experience was really important. So what we have to do as institutions is provide a multitude of opportunities for people to either come on big crowded days to feel the excitement of being with other people or to become members. And if you're not a member of the Art Gallery of Ontario, please go out and become one. To become members, to become members so that you can have that privileged access. So if that's what you really want, to just be able to be alone in a room with a work of art and not be bothered by anything else, that's what membership affords you. Uh, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can have both kinds of experiences in the same place, maybe just not at the same time. Without being too uh, insiderish about it, t what, tell me about the virtual museum or the digital museum and the, the pressure on public institutions to go digital, to create virtual. You, 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 the MoMA's got one of the leading edge um, websites in the world, um, and everybody's trying to catch up to it to a degree. So what's that all about? What, what does that lead to in terms of what you just said? Well, we, we museums, are content-rich uh, organizations. We have a huge amount of knowledge, a huge amount of expertise, and material that we rightly want to share with the largest possible audience in as many different ways as we can. So the, the digital world was invented for us. Uh, and my own feeling is that while we as an institution don't have any interest in having a Museum of Modern Art in Make Up a City, because we just don't want to take on the responsibility of having to become a player in an environment we don't understand, and because we also feel that if we have to make the arguments we make in a second location with works of art that we believe are singular, then we can't make them in our primary location. So that gambit holds no interest for us. But the digital world allows us to have our cake and eat it too, which is to have a location that's physical and real that anyone can visit, but also in a sense to disseminate everything we have thought about and learned to a larger world. And our little breakthrough came a couple of years ago when we realized that almost every museum treated its website as a mirror of its existing entity. Uh, and that that was the least interesting thing you could do. We have the opportunity to create an entirely different Museum of Modern Art online that draws on a lot of what we have, but that can do certain things that we could never do. Um, and so our, once that light bulb went off and we started doing um, different programming online, what happened was our attendance at the Museum of Modern Art is essentially constant. It fluctuates between about 2.8 million and 3 million people a year. And at 3 million, we're virtually maxed out. So you know, our delta is tiny. 
But our web audience has grown from about one, one and a half million people 10 years ago to 18 million people uh, in this year and will be 20 or 22 million next year. And isn't that amazing to be able to have conversations with 20 million people from around the world? So I, I just think it's, it's the best, for me, it's utterly liberating from, from my point of view. Matthew, where is the uh, AGO heading on? Well, we get 20 million a year in the AGO. <laughs> um, we're about 1.5 online, and you know, it feels all right to us. Um, I'll just answer the question conceptually by saying, you know, there are five, six streams uh, that, that, that are engaged with the notion of outer space or technology. One is commerce. One is interpretation. And the one I think that's most interesting for museums, I mean, commerce and interpretation, fine, but it's the notion of sharing and creation of community. And I think what the MoMA's done brilliantly, they've done all three brilliantly, frankly, but the sense of creating a community of sharing is where my brain is at the moment. And how can our work in that world create the sense of a like-minded community of support of, of doers, thinkers, makers, co-creation, um, and how can that bring them closer to the AGO? So, you know, the image that I cannot get out of my mind, you know, is the image of the protesters in the central square in Cairo holding their cell phones up, which was not an act of recording. It was an act of sharing. And there was something so deep in that about how technology created an action, that there has to be something in that relationship back to the AGO, which is what I think about a lot these days. I would take that analogy one step further because I think it's where we're collectively headed. If the last decade has seen a kind of um, separation between virtual and physical space, that certain things happen in physical space, and as I was describing, other things can happen in virtual space. I think the next decade is about the collapsing of those spaces. Those people holding up their cell phone were actually collapsing space. They were in physical space simultaneously engaging in virtual space. And I think we're going to see an enormous amount of really interesting results as these two spaces cease to be separate from each other and literally become the same space. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I think museums are very well positioned to benefit from that collapsing of uh, space. Why? So, because what, what we do is to provide the opportunity to see, think, and enjoy art. Uh, and th the more that can be 24-7, uh, I think the more, the more it is embedded in the way people live and think. So if going to the Museum of Modern Art or going to the Art Gallery of Ontario is a <coughs> Wednesday afternoon activity, then there's six days, assuming you come every week, there's six days when you're not engaging with the Art Gallery of Ontario. But if going to the Art Gallery of Ontario on Wednesday afternoon triggers a thought about Henry Moore, which gets you online looking at Henry Moore, which then opens up a digital project that you carry around with you while you're on the bus, which then translates into you know, uh, a Twitter feed, which opens up a conversation in Facebook with 30 other people who are talking about Henry Moore. Suddenly, that's what you're talking and thinking about. And that begins to dominate 
that leisure time that you have, and perhaps it does so at the exclusion of, at least in our case, of going to Nike Town and shopping, and that won't break my heart. So I know you're going to want to ask people to ask questions, yes. but listening to Glenn is why I think we are in the golden age, right? Which is to say, the big challenge for museums and the great adventure is the notion of the invitation. What is the invitation to learning? What is the invitation to experience? What is the invitation to seeing? And when you listen to Glenn talk about how those worlds come together, it's a fabulous time to be a museum director. To, because, you, because you have more tools, you have bigger, maybe bigger challenges in relation to what your audience expects. Not so singular as it used to be, but you have more tools than you've ever had. I mean, it's extraordinary, it's exciting. Before opening for questions, I just wanted to ask one other uh, of Glenn and Matthew, pick it up if you want. I read over the weekend uh, a speech you gave at Oxford a little while ago, and you, you made this really, I, I'd never heard this thought before, and it was the uh, description of museums as disruptive institutions, uh, that uh, we usually think of museums as a place of repose or social gathering places or it's peace or oases of calm in a commercial or whatever. But you actually had a take that, uh, particularly talking about MoMA, that it was, you saw them as, and their purpose now and going forward as disruptive institutions. Can you explain what you meant about that and why you think that's both a desirable place to go and what that means? For sure. I'm smiling because I think Michael Hazley is in the audience. And Michael will know, because he was president of the Art Gallery of Ontario when I was here, that my knowledge of the business world, you can put on the pin of a head. Oh, no, the head <laughs> of a pin. pin. The head of a pin. It just shows you. And when it comes to counting, it's even worse. So, you know, uh, so everything I know about uh, management and uh, business derives from the lessons I, I got from Michael. Um, and I have, and I have, on, this is a preface to, to something that, that's actually quite serious. And I have actually very little interest in the business side of what we do. But somebody handed me a couple of years ago an article by Christian, um, Clayton Christensen of the Harvard Business School, who, had, who's, who has a thesis about disruptive uh, innovation, is what thesis was about. And it had nothing to do with museums. It had to do with why some companies fail uh, and others succeed. Now, I'll give you the example he used, and then I'll translate it to museums. So the big steel companies, their job in the 50s and 60s and 70s was to protect their business, which was to produce, using a very traditional technology, big chunks of steel. And along came these very small industries that had found another way of making steel. Now, the steel they were making was of a lower quality uh, and represented an infinitesimally small segment of the steel market. So what did the big steel industries do? They ignored it. It wasn't central to what they were doing. It wasn't an important part of the market. Uh, and they paid no attention to it until those little guys who were making steel using new technology started to grow faster than the big steel industries and eventually figured out how to use that same technology to make higher quality steel and eventually put many of the big steel industries out of business. Uh, it was a disruptive innovation, a new technology that allowed a new product to literally alter the landscape of an existing field, right? And 
the analogy, and the way I used it was, in the context of the art world, a place like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is one of the great encyclopedic museums of its kind, in the 1920s, looked at modern art and said, well, why would we deal with it? It's incomprehensible. The artists are difficult. Uh, we deal with great art that's been tested over time. So they were uninterested in Cezanne. They were uninterested in Picasso. They were uninterested in Matisse. They were uninterested in Leger. Uh, and they, they literally said, we don't have to worry about this stuff. It's not really important. Meanwhile, a new segment, call it a new consumptive segment, started to collect Picasso and Matisse and Leger. Why? Because it was less expensive at the time than Van Gogh, uh, sorry, than uh, Van Dyck and Rubens. Two, they liked it. It appealed to them. And suddenly this new segment said, we want a place that celebrates our art. That's about our time. Uh, and so the Museum of Modern Art was created by a small group of people who believed passionately in these artists who were irrelevant at the time to a place like the Met, and actually to a place like the Art Institute of Chicago, to a place like the Philadelphia Museum, and I suspect uh, to a place like the Art Gallery of Ontario. By the time the Met woke up and realized that the Rockefellers, a predominant family in New York, were collecting Cezanne uh, and Picasso, by the time they woke up to the fact that actually tens of thousands of people were interested in looking at this art, it was too late for the Met, and actually, as it turned out, for any other institution in the world, to catch up. The head start was too great. We disrupted a prevailing understanding of art and created a very different kind of institution. So the disruption occurred on the following levels. One, the art itself was disruptive. It was art that didn't seem to fit at the time with earlier art. Two, the audience itself was disruptive. The new audience that wanted to see this art wanted to see it in ways that were different than the audience that wanted to see art at the Met. Why? How? You went to the Met, you wanted, and this is, I'm not making this up, this is, I'm, I'm reducing a very complicated set of arguments to, to something straightforward, I hope. When you went, you went to the Met to be told, A led to B, led to C, led to D. That's the beauty of that encyclopedic museum. The Neolithic jade gave way to the Shang pot that gave way to. People wanted to see modern art, wanted to see the experiment. They wanted a laboratory. They wanted a place of engagement where the story wasn't fully formed, where they could feel their own presence and make their own decisions. So you have a new kind of art, a new kind of audience, a new kind of museum that actually privileged a different way of looking and experiencing uh, art. And I could keep going on with the different levels of uh, disruption that occurred through the Museum of Modern Art. And other museums were also disruptive in their own ways. I'm not saying that we are unique in that. Where it gets interesting is 50 years later, we're now in the 1970s, when a new kind of contemporary art kind of hit the market that didn't feel like it belonged with the great masters, Van Gogh, Cezanne, Picasso, Matisse, right? Where do you put Smithson, Sarah, Judd, right? We didn't bite. We, we kind of 
fun. We were the Met, didn't have to pay attention to all of that. And our lesson was big mistake, big mistake. Uh, so what I've tried to do, which is the conclusion of this uh, elliptical comment, is to make sure that we stay in a state of perpetual disruption, that we never become what Christensen calls a sustaining institution, an institution that's interested in protecting what it has, as opposed to advocating for what it doesn't have. Uh, and part of the PS1 experiment was not just access to another kind of audience. It was to purchase, literally, perpetual disruption. Now, if you have a difficult teenager, as I've had, three, uh, living with perpetual two. disruption. You only had two. Two yeah, go on, okay. Living with perpetual disruption is a pain in the backside. It is not fun. Uh, but the benefit is that you are hypersensitive to what's going on uh, and open to doing things differently, seeing differently, taking risks, being experimental. So for me, this notion of disruption is not only a way of explaining how the Museum of Modern Art came into being, it also describes a mindset that I think is essential if you want to have an institution that, that is about the future rather than about the past. Wow. Uh, ben Lowry is Chairman Mao. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. The perpetual revolution. The, the, the founding of the Museum of Modern Art was or was not driven by mostly women? It was driven primarily by three women. There were two men that joined the, joined the party. I think they were asked in to provide some legitimacy. I don't think they had the, the driving impulse. And is that part of the, that moment of understanding in relation to the Met and all the rest that maybe there was this notion of a different set of values? Yeah, that's a, it's a, you know, we've, we spent the last year on this huge project, uh, which is called Modern Women, was, which was to study the role of women at the Museum of Modern Art, not just female artists, but also the role of our founders and many of our curators and certainly many of our finest curators, uh, all of whom were women. And how has that, in, has, ha, the question was, what does that mean? How does it inflect the institution? Has it impacted us? And, and I really, I, I, I hesitate to sort of generalize there. What I think is true about our institution is, and it may not be unique, but it's certainly a hallmark of our institution, is that the role of women as leaders of the institution has been a constant since our beginning and is still very much a constant today. The majority of our senior curators are female. Our president is a woman. Uh, most of our great trustees have been female. Certainly, uh, we get accused periodically of not showing enough women artists. Uh, but if we don't show enough women artists, it isn't because a bunch of guys are not showing them. It's because a group of women have made their own decisions about which artists they want to focus on. And I actually think we show more and more uh, women as we should today. But you know, it's woven in the personality, but I don't know that I could describe it in quite the way you were pushing. And I wouldn't want to leave uh, with the Chairman Mao uh, uh, <laughs> analogy. I, I, for me, the idea of disruption is a, it's a metaphor for one dimension of what we do. Uh, and in its own way, is more important as a kind of internal test than it is in any kind of external mm -hmm. manifestation. 
I think uh, it's time for some intelligent questions from other people um, um, or any, any more intelligence than I've offered tonight. So, but there, there a, um, there's a microphone, they're recording this, so it's very important they speak into a microphone if you have a question. And uh, yes, ma'am. I'll have this one first and we'll come to you. And directed to either. This uh, aspect of women at MoMA is for me currently very interesting. Uh, because I had an aunt who lived a long time in uh, New York City, and during the 40s, she did work for, with several exhibitions at MoMA. And, uh, but it's very hard to find any official stuff on what she did, either some criticism on the exhibition or something in the press or something like that. And why is that? Well, I don't know the answer per se, because I don't know who your aunt uh, was, but I would hope that if she actually worked at the museum during that period of time, uh, the uh, publication Modern Women uh, would in, at the very least reference her. She was freelancer, freelance artist. So she was an artist? Yes, and uh, she worked with Rudowski. Well, you know, again, for sure, they, they're, and I think one of the reasons we did the Modern Women Project was that we felt that we had not sufficiently recognized the role that so many women had played at the museum. So in a way, Modern Women, which was a series of exhibitions and a major publication and an ongoing research project, is to both celebrate, recognize, and engage the role of women at the museum in a way that wasn't true perhaps a decade or two decades uh, or three decades ago. So my, all I can say is I hope that what was the case 30 or 40 years ago would not be the case today uh, or tomorrow. I'll send you an email. Please. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Matthew, with respect to, uh, caught there, with respect to the current exhibit, um, what is it that you're trying to get us to um, appreciate? Uh, what's your interpretation with these works? Uh, these are works that are now were disruptive at one time, as Glenn mentioned. Uh, Fifty years later, they're not so disruptive. They're actually friends. Um, so what is it that when we see the exhibit as your audience that you would like us to take away? And, and, and Glenn, I'd also like to hear your viewpoint on that, too. Uh, well, I think that the, uh, you know, to put it simply, that the great art unlock, unlocks creativity in the, in the viewer. And I would hope that somebody seeing this exhibition would see in these works of art that stand for a certain kind of freedom even today, that it unlocks something of their own sensibility. Uh, number one. Number two, I would say that for me, the exhibition uh, begins in the shadow of the Second World War and ends in the middle of the Vietnam War and is seen in a moment of extraordinary conflict uh, in the world today. My view, my view, more conflict and uncertainty than I've ever experienced before. So I think that there is something about these works which are breakthrough works in the history of art that represent something about the time in which they were made that will resonate deeply with um, uh, audiences in Toronto, and frankly, I'm really interested in my magical moments with uh, 
with these works of art, but I'm deeply interested in the experience that Ontario College of Art and Design students might have seeing the real thing, thinking about what these artists stood for and the values that are inherent in their work. There's not much for me to add because I think Matthew and I share exactly the same uh, aspirations and in a way the same, hope, uh, same concerns about what engaging uh, work by Rothko and Pollock and Frankenthaler and others might provide. But I would, I, I would also hope that the opportunity to see and think about art that, as you said, are friends uh, can be done in such a way that they become unfamiliar again. These are sufficiently uh, important, uh, innovative, powerful, and engaging works of art that they should never be totally familiar, that one should actually discover something in them. Their radicality, I think, is still present. And I think in the very handsome installation here, that comes through. Uh, and so I would hope that in addition to being surrounded by friends, one would also feel the sense of excitement that they're perhaps friends that you didn't know as well as you thought you knew them. Thanks very much for your comments. They've been very interesting. Um, I was interested in your disruptive theory um, as far as business and also your um, admission that you're not the business guy in the museum. Just talk to Michael Hazel. He'll, he'll <laughs> confirm that he'll for you. He'll confirm that. However, Matthew, I am in, in, you know, worried about the Art Gallery of Ontario. In Canada, if we take the disruptive theory idea and move it through the AGO, how do you think that our funders, being mostly the government, would react to that? Um, well, you know, when Glenn was talking about his, the, the, the idea of disruption, what I was thinking about was something very positive and very powerful for me, which is that if we did it well as an institution, we would affirm the identity of many people in our community. That by virtue of what he was describing, the sort of challenge to accepted truth and looking at things from a different point of view, you would in the end create a different invitation to acts of interpretation, to acts of experience, and to accessibility issues because you would open up the possibility that maybe you could look at art from a different point of view. So I saw it very positively. I didn't see it as an act of violence or an act of aggression, this notion of disruption. I thought it was an opening up of a certain way of thinking. And so to that degree, I could only imagine that um, our core stakeholder, the provincial government in this instance, and key donors who have believed in what we do and continue to support us, would celebrate that notion of affirmation of identity if that's where it led, if that's where it led. Because I think when you look at the um, educational initiatives of the provincial government, a lot of them are about identity, learning, shared experience, and I think museums are very much in line with those values. So I don't see that there'd necessarily be a disjunction. Uh, I'd like uh, both of you uh, uh, to answer uh, uh, this question. You bring a major visiting show to your institution. How can you uh, use it to lead visitors into the less renowned but still valuable works of your permanent collection? Uh, 
Well, um, Glenn has a strategy that I haven't yet employed, and I, frankly, I'm thinking about it. And one is to have a single price for the total experience of the institution. So we have a greater challenge in doing that because of the way in which we celebrate the specialness by surcharging the special exhibition. So we immediately, we, we're, we're trapped in a way because we're communicating to our audiences that that's special and maybe the rest isn't so special. So we have a, we've created a little challenge for ourselves in that regard. But um, let me put it this way. At the end of July, we'll open up an extraordinary retrospective of the work of General Idea. It, you know, like the gold standard in contemporary art in Canada and uh, the right response to the Abstract Expressionist exhibition in terms of celebrating Canadian art. And you will not be able to come into the AGO without knowing that that exhibition is on. So people who come to the ABEX show will know that that is another experience that's on offer to them, that's included in their price of admission, and we will encourage people to wander, to experience, to uh, take that in as part of their experience at the art gallery. <coughs> I would just add a little bit to that because it's obviously something we all think about a lot of the time. Uh, so Matthew's right. We came up with a strategy that said a single ticket gets you uh, everything you could want. So there's no barrier to seeing the temporary exhibitions, nor is there a barrier to seeing the uh, permanent collection. But, but beyond that, what we tried to do was to make going to the temporary, the primary space for temporary exhibitions the most distant act you can take in the museum. <laughs> so you actually have to circulate by everything else on the assumption that you're going to have, you know, fall off or that people coming out of the temporary exhibitions instead of just racing out of the museum are going to say, oh yeah, I saw something on the third floor that looked interesting. But in addition to that, putting a t effectively putting a temporary exhibition space on almost every floor of the museum. So we mix it up, and since there's no barrier to going in because you don't need a special ticket, we hope that somebody who comes to the museum to see our German Expressionist show today will also uh, be surprised by Francis Elise, which is next door, uh, and will also be intrigued by the reinstallation of our uh, post-war galleries because you have all our great stuff. Uh, so we've had to look at what was going on elsewhere than uh, New York. Uh, and and the, I suppose the, more, the, the thoughtful way of saying what I'm trying to, to say is that you have to work very hard at having a strategy that ensures that those who are attracted by your special exhibitions feel invited and welcomed and intrigued to also engage with everything else at the institution. Uh, I think it gets hard. Um, Matthew didn't mention what I think of as the biggest challenge in this. Space becomes either your friend or your enemy. Uh, I'll give you the exaggerated example. At a place like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, it's impossible to visit the museum. It's so big. You, you, you go to what you want to see. You go to the Costume Institute. You go to see the big exhibition. You go to the Greco-Roman galleries. You don't do the Metropolitan, or you'd be there for three weeks, and they'd have to put you on life support, right? <laughs> uh, and, and 
we're, we, the Museum of Modern Art, are on the cusp of being too big. That is, being sufficiently big that all you, that you're too directed in what you do because you know you can't do everything. And I think the AGO is very much in that dilemma, that it's so large. And I don't just mean in terms of what it covers intellectually, but I also mean in the topographic experience that, you know, it's, it's a big commitment to have to walk from A to Z. So you probably say to yourself, I'm going to see the, I know when I went to the ROM, because I used to go there all the time with our kids, off to the Batcave this afternoon. Uh, but you know, their Islamic holdings are fantastic, but they were on the wrong floor, uh, right? So this is not such a, you know, it, it, it might be reductive to say topography is an issue to deal with, but it's a reality in how we experience space. Uh, this is a question for Matthew, particularly. Um, a question about the opportunity and the challenge of Nuit Blanche. And I, I ask that because my experience of Nuit Blanche is that in terms of opportunity, it violates that, that people who come to Nuit Blanche violate the criteria that Glenn was talking about in terms of economics and in terms of education. Um, the challenge is that many of those same people, I suspect, would be very intimidated to walk in these doors. For you, what, does, what kind of learnings and what kind of challenge and opportunity do you see about the connection between the AGO and what happens on that night? Well, it's like when somebody asked Wilt Chamberlain what sign he was, his response was, I'm the dollar sign. So um, <laughs> when I hear Nuit Blanche, I just know it costs us $20,000 to open up on Nuit Blanche. And I think to myself, hmm, you know, free night, many, many thousands of people. We have done it, you know, five different ways. We've opened up certain galleries. We've opened up the whole building. We've closed the building and done projections in the park. We've done something act active in the front of the building. So what am I saying? We actually don't know the appropriate response for us as an institution, but I think it's a great event for the city. I think it celebrates the notion of creativity. Um, I think it gives the opportunity to many artists to be introduced to a wide audience, the opportunity to. Whether that fully happens is another question. There's a lot of grazing and sampling uh, that goes on, but um, uh, it is no doubt um, a catalyst for creativity in our city. Now, I'm saying that, uh, still feeling chastened by our 17-year-old son who told me the other day, because I had an idea for Nuit Blanche, and I tried it out at the dinner table, and he said, uh, you don't do Nuit Blanche, because you go to bed by midnight. <laughs> so you can't actually, uh, you can't actually tell me how, you, you don't know how to program for Nuit Blanche, which actually is a pretty interesting uh, thought, probably true. But my point is that I'm a huge believer. I think it's a great addition to our city. I don't think we found our groove yet in terms of what we should do as an institution. Can I just add a quick comment, not about Nuit Blanche, but it reminded me about something that I think relates to it. We, we were very interested 10 years ago when we merged with uh, PS1 about growing our younger audience and using all the knowledge and energy that PS1 had in that domain. And one of the things that we ended up doing was an aha moment uh, like Matthew had with uh, his son, which was, 
Well, of course, if you're 50 years old, you're not going to figure out what is going to be interesting to an 18-year-old. I mean, you have zero chance of that. Uh, so we actually started turning to our really junior staff, people who had just come to the Museum of Modern Art right out of college, 21, 22, 23 years old, said, you know what? You have carte blanche. Program for your friends. Come up with programs, whatever they are, for your friends, and don't talk to us about it. Just do it. Uh, and we built, uh, they ended up calling themselves Pop Rally, and they have a base of about 10,000 people who come to all their events, not all at the same time, but essentially they sell out uh, in literally a nanosecond. Uh, and it's fantastic. And it, so, you know, in a way, what, what Matthew's son was saying is something, we, back to disruptive, we all have to remember that the answers don't come from us. They come from the people who can ask the questions. On that note, I'm going to uh, have to uh, thank, uh, uh, on your behalf, Matthew and Glenn, for uh, uh, some very engaging and intelligent conversation. And, uh, and thank you for coming out on this beautiful night. And I would just like to thank all three of you for a very stimulating and provoking. I have more questions now than answers. Um, I remember coming, by the way, to the ROM in the 90s to a talk by Peter Jenkins, who was then director of the Walsall Gallery. And the title of his talk was Museums Beyond the Missionary Position, just to get back to this. <laughs> <laughs> and he maintained, because people always talk about, they talk about dumbing down. I think I'm a bit allergic to that expression. And people always assume that when you make something accessible, it means you're necessarily lowering standards. And he maintained that actually, if you made things accessible, you could raise the standards. And I've always believed that firmly. So. Our next talk is uh, two weeks tonight, June 29th, and it's Norman Kleblatt, who's chief curator of the Jewish Museum in New York, and he will be talking about the exhibition Abstract Expressionism and the Battle of the, the Burbs, Burgs. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.